Gibeonites today um, in uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 21. Let's, uh, let's stand and read the first 14 verses, and then we want to catch up. Got something out of chapter 21 to hit when we move into chapter 21. But <clears throat> And there was a famine. This is 2 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1. And there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And if you remember, of course, when Joshua and all that were invading the land, the Gibeonites pretended they were from a far place and not part of the Canaanites that were, you know, destined to be destroyed. And they fooled Joshua and the Israelites, and they made a pact with them. They swore before the Lord, as we'll talk about in a moment, to protect them. Right? So that's the, that's who these people are. Verse 3, And David said to the Gibeonites, What can I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? In other words, that we can uh, Israel can be blessed and not under this famine. For uh, it was clear that they, God had sent the judgment because what they did, what Saul did. And the Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. In other words, they didn't really have that power, right? And this, what? Uh, and he said, what do you say that I should do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in the territory of Israel, that is Saul, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord and give you of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Of course, we should be very familiar with all that by now. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Moabite. She gave and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aria, or Ai, or Aia, took the sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them, from the heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ahah, the concubine of Saul, had done, uh, and it's probably David allowed the uh, sons born to the concubines to be the ones who were uh, hung for the Lord. And David went and took the bones of Saul, <clears throat> the bones of his son Jonathan, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square at Bethan, Bethshan, where the Philistines were hung, had hanged them, on the day the Philistines killed Saul at Gilboa. And he brought up from 
here the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those that were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded, and after that God responded to the plea of the land. As the names there had to wade through. Well, uh, just by way of review then, let's remember uh, what we were looking at last week. We saw David returning to Jerusalem and rewarding those who had submitted to his rule. Uh, but there were those who continued to rebel. Uh, we saw the division uh, between Judah and uh, the northern tribes begin and uh, all the pettiness that, that uh, took place there. Uh, we talked about... Uh, uh, was it Sheba? Sheba? Oh boy, I've forgotten his name. Get too many names in my head. Sheba had rebelled, uh, had led the northern tribes into rebellion and eventually died for its efforts. So, uh, it's just a picture of the Lord as he returns. There will be reward for those who have submitted to him as king, but uh, those who will not, uh, will be, uh, destroyed. And, uh, so, just some things that we looked at there and, uh, also, the, we, we begin to see this division between the north and the south. And of course, you know, you don't, having not lived at those times, there's all sorts of things that probably were not being told. Uh, you know, divisions don't just come, happen overnight. There's little things here and there. You know, America, we had a civil war. Uh, Israel has had several civil wars in one way or another. And so these things take time, but by the time of Rehoboam's reign, uh, there was a great division so that they eventually just left the kingdom entirely. And we'll get to all that. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about, though, uh, in the latter part of uh, chapter 20, um, uh, it says in verse uh, 23, Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaniah, the son of Joada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Uh, there's in all likelihood, that was a reference to the uh, archers and the ones who used the uh, slings like David used. Uh, that, that's how those words should be translated. So he was in charge of a certain part of the army. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, uh, was the recorder. And Sheba was secretary. And Zadok and Biathar were priests. And here the Jerethite was also David's priest. And well, that's interesting. Why include uh, that particular, uh, you know, what what are we supposed to get out of that? Well, I, I think that, you know, we have seen in these two books, right, First and Second Samuel, the, the scheming of men. We, we've seen how that men look on the outward appearance and make bad judgment. God sees the uh, inside of man. He knows what's going on. We've seen people uh, scheme. Absalom, of course, is the latest one to scheme. Uh, but those who... Uh, do not, who use, you know, wisdom simply put is to use our knowledge in a way that is good, that helps us, right? But if you're not using wisdom to serve the Lord, but self, it's going to come back on you. And so we've seen in all these little schemings, those who are doing it with only their self in mind always end up, uh, it always comes back on them because only those who serve the Lord shall at the end, uh, be blessed. And so now we have, 
another rebellion has been put down. David comes back. And what do these verses tell us in here, these, these last few verses of chapter 20? That with all the blustering of man against God or against the true king, uh, at the end of the day, David's king, David's kingdom is still intact. Nothing's happened. He still has all his men, his armies in place, the government's in place, the priests are in place. At the end of the day, uh, God will stand. His, his will will stand. And we can take, uh, that to heart for us. If we are faithful to the Lord, of course, if we are saved, if we are followers of Christ, uh, the, the promises of God, let us know that when the dust clears, we'll still be standing. Now, that might not mean immediately in this life. We might, uh, you know, die. We might be persecuted. Many have been burned, you know, whatever. Persecution. But when the dust of the history of the earth settles and Christ comes back, we will be inheriting the earth, as the Beatitudes tell, tell us. And, and, and Christ's kingdom goes on, and it always will, and uh, nothing can stop it. And so, you know, I thought it's kind of an interesting couple of verses there that just remind us that nothing, with all of Absalom's blustering, nothing really happened. So, that brings us then to David and the Gibeonites. Now, these last, uh, these, these next two chapters especially aren't necessarily in order. It seems like the writer has decided to just Add a couple of things that happened earlier on. Um, I, I would uh, say that perhaps uh, one reason why 21 is there at this point uh, is we'll see in chapter 24 that the Lord will send another famine. Uh, in one case, David reacts well. In this case, that we're looking today, in that case, he won't react well. So it's just a, a reminder that... Um, of consistency in our lives, uh, you know, if one moment when we, when we go through trial, we 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 search the Lord, we pray to God, we we're, we, we we seek to serve Him faithfully in that trial, uh, things will go well. But the next trial comes. Sometimes we get full of ourselves, we forget about the Lord, we react in a bad way, and, and it doesn't work out well for us. And why should it, right? So there there might be that, but. Uh, just keep this in mind, though, as we go through these, that, it, that it, it, some of this stuff happened earlier in David's reign, and this is probably one of those things uh, that happened not at this point, but earlier on. And so, <clears throat> um, certainly it, it happened, of course, after verse 7 tells us that Mephibosheth and all that had taken place already, so it happened sometime after that. But at least we're impressed with the fact that God doesn't always cause the consequences of our actions to be felt immediately. Saul had killed these Gibeonites, and Saul does this because Saul was, uh, we know, as I've said, in my opinion, Saul was not a believer. Saul was a mess. Um, but he was, uh, much like Samson, although Samson, the Bible makes it plain, was a man of faith, it would appear. Uh, he was a patriot, you might say, to, to Israel as their king. And he did seek, he, he was concerned with the welfare of the nation, but it was uh, on his own agenda, right? That's, that, that was always Saul's problem. He, he served the Lord the way he wanted to. 
And so Saul begins by fighting the Philistines, which he was supposed to do. But, you know, fighting the Philistines is hard work. And what Saul ends up doing is looking around and finding a people that much easier to, to destroy. And that was the Gibeonites. They were just, uh, they were the, the servants of Israel, more or less. Uh, they had no way to protect themselves. And Saul says, well, you know what? I'm going to make a name for myself, and I'm going to serve Israel, and I'm going to get rid of Israel's enemies. And he, he tries to wipe out the Gibeonites or something. Obviously, they didn't all get wiped out. But he, and the problem is, of course, Israel had, as a nation, made a covenant with the Gibeonites to spare them and not to do that. So, and they did that in the name of Yahweh. So, it, it was an oath that uh, you could not just break without consequences. So, so that's what we find here. <clears throat> uh, Saul just reveals his his obedience, when it's not motivated properly to serve the Lord, our obedience will always end up being a bad thing. It's not, it's not what uh, serving the Lord is all about. So, um, and of course, famine was one of the ways that God said the nation would suffer if they disobeyed him and didn't keep covenant in some way. And so, uh, David knew that, that something's going on here. And, while we're under the new covenant, <clears throat> and the way God chastens us might not always um, reflect the same way in the Old Testament, yet the, the famine is just a great illustration, a great type of what happens when we don't serve the Lord, when we start to do things we want to do, there will be a famine in our life. I mean, you ever, you know, look around and you wonder why I haven't been, uh, I don't have any peace in my heart. I haven't been enjoying the messages. I haven't, uh, you know, my marriage isn't doing too well. My relationships aren't well. I, my prayer life is a mess. You know, all these things. There's a famine in my life, and, and often it's because we haven't, we have unconfessed sin in our life. We're, we're doing things that we know are wrong. And God says, look, I'm not going to let you have peace uh, and fulfillment. Uh, things aren't going to go well. Uh, when you haven't confessed these things that you mean. So that's kind of what's going on here, I think, in type. Uh, and so they're doing something that, uh, suffered for something that had been done many years before. Again, the Lord doesn't always, and that's always been a, a problem for all men, saved or lost, when God doesn't send immediate judgment upon someone for doing wrong, especially when you're lost, you think, well, you know, there's not going to be any consequences to my actions. And, and they forget that, well, we're all standing before the Lord someday. No one's getting by with anything. But for a Christian, we don't have to, you know, we don't fall into that trap. We shouldn't fall into that trap. And we can be patient uh, when we see maybe injustice take place. And so, um, <clears throat> Skip ahead here a little bit. Uh, the, the, so, say, so why did the Lord then send this, uh, this, this, uh, famine? What's going on here? And, and why did these men have to die? Just when we read this, it, it sounds pretty barbaric to some degree and certainly, uh, you know, things that we're not used to. And, and what you gotta remember, and this is always the problem when it comes to God's judgment and those skeptics who think they can uh, 
decide whether God is just in a matter or whether things are fair and all that kind of stuff. Is that the real sin here is that the Lord has dishonored, excuse me, Saul has dishonored the Lord's reputation. Remember, they made a covenant with the Gibeonites in the name of the Lord. Uh, if you go back and you read in Joshua, it says that they cut a covenant, which is often used when the covenant was made. And if you remember, remember we talked about Abraham when God cut a covenant with Abraham. He divided the animals in two and, and the Lord walked between them. And the idea is that just as these animals have been slain, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, then I am inviting this to happen to me, right? And so Israel has not kept up their end of the bargain. They say, well, why was a famine upon all of Israel? Why not just Saul? In this case, Saul is the king of the nation. He stands for the nation. What he does affects the nation. It's the uh, the concept of federal headship that we see all through Scripture in one way or another. Primarily with Adam and Christ, right? The first Adam uh, was stood in our place in Eden, and when he sinned, we became guilty. We became sinners through that. In the second Adam, Jesus, uh, those in Jesus, when he died, his death becomes our death, right? He, st- he stood in our place as a substitutionary atonement. So in this, this is what's going on here. Saul, as the king, when he breaks covenant, as their federal head, uh, it, it brings God's judgment upon the whole nation. And, and so, not only that, uh, because Israel has made this covenant in the name of Yahweh, to violate it is to say something about Yahweh. Yahweh, as we are God's people, uh, we are, as we break this covenant, we are bringing God's name into this, uh, same sin. And, and so, what we're saying is that when we make a covenant in Yahweh's name, uh, we do that in vain. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. It might, we might keep it, we might not. And, and, and God says, no, you shall not keep, you shall not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. Uh, when you make a covenant in my name, just like in the law, if you made an oath in my name, you should keep it. Because you are uh, otherwise saying that uh, we can treat the Lord lightly. We treat his name lightly. And so it also means you are giving God permission to bring the curses upon you if you break your word. Because when you do it, of course, in God's name, you're doing it before him. So you're kind of inviting his judgment upon you. And uh, as I referred to uh, a minute ago, Joshua 9, 19, but all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them, the Gibeonites, by the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. That's the end of the matter. And and Saul, when he he decides, well, what can I do to uh, look good in front of uh, Israel? And he, he breaks this covenant. And so this isn't just uh, the avengement of, of the Gibeonites by Saul's family, some of Saul's family dying. It is the Lord restoring his name. It is the Lord emphasizing to us that sin, especially a sin against the Lord, these are things that uh, 
you, the Lord will not pass by. So it looks like he had because it is something that took place uh, decades before. But uh, the Lord said, I haven't forgotten any of that. And so now it's time for uh, this sin to be dealt with. But it is, of course, especially interesting to us how the sin is atoned for uh, that we have talked about some before, but we'll do it again. And first of all, one thing that separates Christianity from other religions is that our God tells us exactly what the problem is and how to fix it. Uh, you know, sin, uh, he, 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 the wage of sin is death, and that uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, right? So, you know, there was the Bible's very clear about what man's problem is and how it must be fixed through Jesus Christ. We remember the sad condition of Acts 17. Remember when Paul was uh, at, in Athens and he uh, saw the tomb to the unknown God. And, not the tomb. Uh, what, uh, the, the altar or whatever it was to the unknown God, right? And it was the, Ath- the Athenians or the Greeks were just shooting in the dark. We have all these gods, but it's very possible we've missed some. You know, we don't know. So here's this shrine, this, this altar, to, to just in case we miss one, right? And uh, it, it just reminds us of paganism. That uh, I was reading about, there's a, they uncovered a Babylonian prayer that was uh, prayed by some guy uh, at the end of the Babylonian age. And it was a prayer to, uh, to any and all gods, because conflict of some kind of calamity had come into his life. And, uh, in, in, in their culture, in, in, in generally in paganism, when something bad happens to you, you've been in a god. You've done something wrong. And you can see the, the concept of, of the true god carry out in the cultures, uh, but of course completely, uh, missing the point in, in, in darkness. So he, he know he's offended a god. But the problem is he didn't know what god. There's not, a, he didn't have enough light to know. And so he, he, he prays this prayer to any and all gods. Whatever, whoever out there that I've offended, I don't know why. I don't know who you are. Uh, and, and it, it was a very pathetic prayer that he doesn't really know what to do about it, but he's sorry for that. And of course, that's paganism. It, uh, they don't know. There's, there's, there's no, there's, there's no revelation like we have. Uh, the true God may, has made himself known. And, uh, so, uh, God didn't send the chastening for no reason. He's, he's gonna, he, God doesn't chasten us without letting us know why at some point, and it's what we see here. Um, everything God does is for a good reason, even when it's bad, and nothing is arbitrary. So these are just good principles that the Bible is very clear to teach us. And so we have a people under a curse, uh, two groups are at odds, and uh, there's nothing that you can do to rectify the problem. Uh, there's nothing they can do. you got the Israelites who have, uh, through their king, uh, killed some of the Gibeonites, and now they're under a curse or under this famine, and what are we going to do about it? And uh, the Lord comes back uh, with, uh, there's going to have to be a blood sacrifice. This is what, there was murder involved, and so it's going to take a murder. Uh, to 
rectify the situation. Uh, not a murder, but there's going to be bloodshed. Right? There's going to be it's a capital crime. And this is God revealed to us in Genesis nine when you shed blood, innocent blood, then your blood is to be shed. And so that is what's going to happen here. Uh, you know, the Gibeonites say that well, it's not a monetary problem, and it kind of reminds me of the song that we sing. Uh, well, from the Bible, nor silver nor gold can obtain my salvation. The Gibeonites make it very clear that well, this isn't a matter of 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 you paying off your debt. It's life for a life, right? And that's what that's what salvation is. It's it's life for a life. It's Christ's life. He's going to have to die on our behalf. And so you begin to see something very uh, gospel-like about all this, right? If there's going to be peace, there's going to have to be uh, shedding of blood because the penalty has to fit the crime. And so all this shows us why Christ had to die as he did. Um, and we have talked about this before, but what do they do? They, they take seven of Saul's uh, offspring, we might say. They, they weren't all necessarily his children, but maybe in some cases his grandchildren. And they kill them and hang them out before the Lord. And uh, as we have seen um, in uh, like Numbers 35, 33, we saw there's only two examples where this took place uh, in the Old Testament. Says you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for the for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land or the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So you see the idea that when there is uh when that when when blood has been shed, the sin has taken place, the land is polluted, and uh there's it's it, blood was shed, so life's got to be taken from that person, right? It's basically capital punishment. But we learn, of course, in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Under the law, when you hung someone on a tree, he was cursed by God. And in this case, you see here, there, there's a sense in which uh, the, the, the crime has brought a, a curse upon the whole land. And so this guy has paid the penalty for that crime, and it's, it's, God has placed his curse on him and, and has saved the land. They say, well, you read a little bit more in, into that than you should. Well, in Numbers 25, remember the Moabites uh, that had sent the, uh, the women down into the camp to try to get pull the men into idolatry and, and all that was going on. And what happened? Uh, Moses took a representative from each one of the tribes and hung them before the Lord. And the Lord uh, cursed them. and uh, when he was cursing the whole land, and uh, when he hung those upon the uh, on the tree, they received the curse, and the Lord stopped the pestilence that He had sent. Right? They were they were they were like a substitute, and so they bore the curse of God for the people by hanging on a tree. And that's what's going on here, is it not? 
these, all of Israel is being under famine, and so basically are going to die, right? They're under this curse. The seven sons of Saul are hung up. They then become cursed, and God sends rain. Uh, the very last verse of, uh, of the chapter, or of that, uh, not chapter, but that section, verse 14, God responded to the plea for the land, and the land represents the people. Uh, in this case, a famine, so the land was no longer producing food. So you see this idea of substitutions. It's the two times where this aspect of the law, being cursed by hanging on a tree, uh, brings life uh, in a substitution, one death for another. And uh, so the Gibeonites are merely demanding justice. And, uh, and, you know, let the covenant come in force. You, you broke the covenant, so there's got to be a death to make up for it. And so we have seen that it is God's wrath that in, in the atonement doesn't just wipe away our sins, but it appeases God. God's law has been broken in Adam and in each one of us. And so Christ, first of all, keeps the law. He produces, the, he, he does what the first Adam did not do. At the second Adam, he earns righteousness. He obeys the Lord. And he becomes a suitable sacrifice for all sinners then. And, uh, he is hung on a tree to, to, that, that God's wrath could be averted. God's wrath descended upon the Son so that we could go free. You know, so, we're just a great illustration of uh, here in Second Samuel of the, the atonement of Jesus Christ. There's a song that we sing, uh, smitten, stricken, and afflicted. One verse says, of you who think of sin but lightly. And as I said earlier, we read this account and we think, boy, it's kind of cruel. And, and innocent guys had to die. And uh, we see this woman and the poor mother, she's shooing the animals away and you know, just what a pathetic scene. And, and we think, well, you know, boy, God is cruel. God's making much about nothing, much to do about nothing. And that's how the world thinks. That's how I think a lot of Christians, we get influenced by the world. And we, we, why make such a big deal over sin? Well, because it was an attack upon the Lord himself, as we've already demonstrated. And there are people who say the same thing about the cross. Well, that, that bloody cross and that's uh, the uh, cosmic child abuse or, or Jesus was just set an example. He's a martyr. Uh, this idea of penal substitution of God's wrath being poured out. We don't want to talk about God's wrath anymore. And why? Because we don't want to, we don't want to make our sin to be that big of a deal. See, if you Understand God's wrath against sin, then you begin to realize if that's the case, then I'm a sinner and God's wrath must be against me. And we see in the Old Testament that God doesn't take these things lightly. <clears throat> that God pours out his wrath. He's pouring out his wrath on Israel and he turns that upon those uh, seven young men so that Israel could go free. God said, don't take my wrath. Don't take sin and don't take my wrath lightly. Uh, because you'll do that to your own destruction. So, this is a great verse here. If you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here you see its nature rightly. 
here it's Yiltma yesterday. The first song talks about looking at the cross. You know, what do you, what do you, what do you see in Christ that hangs upon the cross? Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed. Son of man and son of God. So, these are not just human beings doing their own thing. The Lord is active in this. This isn't just David being cruel. This is the Lord saying, you know, through the Gibeonites, this is what must take place because it's, it's reminding us that we're, this is us. It's not like the Gibeonites or the Israelites or even Saul, like they're, they're just bad and this is the, what happens to them. No, this is what all those who are born in Adam are going to suffer the same thing unless somebody who hangs on a tree takes away God's wrath. So it's just the gospel. Now, another thing we might, and I've kind of alluded to this, but, you know, over in Deuteronomy 24, um, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor small shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one should be put to death for their own sin. And you say, well, isn't that a violation of that law? Well, just remember what we said about federal headship. Uh, I think Deuteronomy is talking about if if your father commits murder and you're a child, then you are not to make the family suffer for what the father did. But with Saul, he was the king. It, it was a national crime because as king, he was their federal head. And so what he did, the rest of the nation uh suffered for. So just keep that in mind. And I think we see this principle as we brought out before in Exodus 20 when uh, God is giving the Ten Commandments and that's what he says that the Lord will uh, send justice upon the third and fourth generation. Uh, it's a, this is a national covenant and when the nation breaks the covenant, it will bring consequences upon uh, the children. It's a federal headship idea I think going on there that idea. Uh, it, remember John 11 where the uh, priest had met together with the officials and they were figuring out how they could put Jesus to death because they said, you know, if this keeps going on, Rome is going to come and, and carry us all away into slavery and destroy us all. So it's better that Jesus die. Uh, Caiaphas says it's better that one die so that the whole nation doesn't die, right? And even though they had no idea what they what they were saying, he was prophesying that this is exactly what's going to happen. When Jesus dies, he'll die so that uh, the nation, those chosen in him, shall go free, right? And so it's the same idea. <clears throat> um, then... Verse 10 on, we, we see this, this very pathetic sight of, of the mother keeping the animals and things, the birds off of the carcasses. And then David, you know, hearing about it, feeling sorry for her. And so he has Saul, Jonathan brought uh, their bones and uh, the, these men taken down and buries them all together and kind of brings all that to a close. And um, I think right in the middle of all this, we're kind of reminded how that we are all marked out ahead of time in the eternal covenant. Uh, 
to miss the horror of God's wrath. In other words, back in verse 7, remember God spared Mephibosheth. So right as all this is going on, while, while all are under judgment, God has chosen some in the eternal covenant to be spared. Right? And so you, you kind of see that there. It makes me think of John uh, 6.37. All that the Father has given to me will come to me and I will not cast them out. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Mephibosheth represents the, the, the elect, right? And they're saved from the wrath to come in, in all these things. So it just kind of reminds us about that. And so as we see this woman and, and, and what's going on there, uh, in the, the whole pathetic situation, you know, you think about Psalm 90, 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I don't think it's just there inconsequentially. I mean, because, you know, you ask yourself, why do we read about this, this woman trying to keep the birds and the animals off the carcasses and so forth? And I think we're forced to look at the scene a little longer. And I think I've been trying to say this all along. We're given a very vivid picture here, a vivid picture about what it means to sin against the Lord. A picture of that there's consequence to that, that God's wrath will be poured out, that sin, the wages of sin is death, and that it's going to happen. The Lord doesn't forget. These things took place. Again, Adam's sin took place at the beginning, but it's got consequences, and and the Lord will not forget. Either you're going to be in Christ and saved or you're not. And that your day of judgment is coming. And so it's, we're just, we're just, the whole scene is just one of, to make us think about the awfulness of what's taken place. And that God will be satisfied. God's wrath will be appeased. And then lastly, in uh, the latter part of chapter 21, there's war with the Philistines again. And again, this is why probably this, this again took place uh, at some point David was king. But remember, uh, he had killed Goliath. and uh, But it's still fresh on their mind. And Goliath has some sons. And Goliath has some family members, some cousins. And uh, so at some point uh, in, in the is as David is fighting the Philistines, and he's he's done that several times early on in his uh, campaign. He meets up with Goliath's kin, and uh, that's what we read here, starting in verse fifteen. Verse sixteen says that Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed three hundred shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zuria, came to his age and aid and attacked the Philistines and killed him. And David's men swore to him, you should no longer, longer go out to battle uh, with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Because they had already, they had just reinstated that back in with um, Absalom. And after that, there was a, another war with the Philistines at Gob. And uh, this guy, I'll refrain from trying to... Uh, say that name, struck down Saf, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And of course, Saul, or Goliath wasn't the only giant. There were others. It was part of the Nephilim that we've talked about before. Uh, the, the, these uh, 
huge giant people, race of some people that probably descended from uh, the time of Noah and the angels, uh, the sons of God that we've talked about before. There's still some left over. Um, uh, in verse 20, and there was war again at Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, so here is one that looked, that sounds a lot like Goliath, because if we taunt him like Goliath did, Jonathan the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Uh, so you have the, the, these uh, David, and you now have some of his uh, warriors who are striking down uh, the rest of them. And so I think it's just, this is the end of the Nephilim, probably. But um, verse 19 gives us a small problem where it says that the uh, there's another war, and uh, Elihan, the uh, son of this guy, the Bethlehemite, strikes down Goliath the Gittite. Now, Goliath was from Gath, but the original Goliath. The shaft of whose spear is like the weaver's beam, and uh, it sounds like, since it's named Goliath, it could very well have been another Goliath. Uh, but, you know, some say, well, uh, here's a mistake in the Bible because David's already killed Goliath, and here we got another guy killing Goliath. But if you go over to First Chronicles, chapter 20, and in verse 5, we find out that there's information that perhaps got lost that First Chronicles lets us know about. In verse 5, it says, for David, uh, excuse me, First Chronicles chapter 21, or 20, I'm in the wrong, yeah, 20 verse 5. And there was again war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like the spear. So that in Second Samuel got uh, obviously deleted at some point, and we, we see the full version of it. This was the brother, these were sons, these were brothers, cousins, whoever, of Goliath that we are dealing with. And so we are reminded in closing then, um, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication for me declares the Lord. David, as the king, as the type of Christ, has defeated uh the, the, the giant, the great enemy, and so what happens? Those who follow in his train are doing the same thing. He, those who follow the Lord are able to defeat sin, are able to uh, serve the Lord in a good way, in a, in a victorious way, as we follow Christ. And that's all we see here. We see these men of David following their leader and accomplishing the great feats that David did. And uh, so just some interesting things. But uh, probably one of the reasons that's included, though, is to remind us that this is finally the end of the, of the uh, Nephilimites. And they're all been destroyed. That's why we don't see uh, these kind of people anymore. But uh, you know, I guess we can uh, speculate on some of that. Any questions or comments before we close? Yes, Rick. 
Father, we thank you for uh, this day, for your word, and we ask your blessings upon us. May the word of, of God go forth in power. May it be practical to us, Lord, uh, in, in the sense that we uh, are better servants, stronger in our faith, and love you more, we pray in Jesus' name.